Nomine Patris et Filii Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tuum liarbus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Santa Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in hora mortis nostre. Amen. In nomine Patris et Filii Spiritus Sancti. Amen. This is Timothy S. Flanders. Welcome to The Meaning of Catholic. Today we're talking about the annulment crisis. This whole week is going to be devoted to the annulment crisis. We'll have two shows. Today we're going to talk about the political, economic, and social factors that have contributed to the annulment crisis. And then on Thursday, we're going to come back with one of our patrons, John Farrell, is going to be on the show. He's going to be talking about the doctrinal factors. So we're going to discuss more of the doctrinal controversy at that time. And in this show, we'll also do just kind of a basic rundown on w of what are annulments, what they're not. Uh, so the first start, we're, we're just going to go through some of the history. But first, why are we talking about this? What is this? Why is this a crisis? Well, if you pick up your copy of Infiltration by Marshall, uh, he has on page 162, he, has, he goes through the uh, index of leading Catholic indicators by uh, Kenneth C. Jones, and he goes through all the statistics. You've heard all the statistics, uh, dropping rates of religious, uh, pew attendance, uh, ex, ex, baptisms, everything. But if you look at an annulments, there's a particularly striking number. So 1965, there were 338 annulments. So this is... Um, I believe this is just, yeah, this is just America. So we're just talking about America here. So just in the year 1965 in America, there were 338 annulments, okay? So then in 2002, that number jumps by a factor of 147 to 50,000 annulments. So that factor in particular, if you look at all the other numbers, that doesn't seem to be such a dramatic uh, change, there's, there are these dramatic changes as, you know, the, the numbers are all falling, but the annulments are skyrocketing. They've skyrocketed, again, factor of, so it's multiplied by 147. So that is, in a nutshell, that is the annulment crisis, is that the annulments have skyrocketed. There are 147 times more annulments than there were in 1965, and that's, that number probably is even higher now so since that was from 2002, so that's 18 years ago. So we're going to talk a little bit about why this is, why is, what's going on. Um, so this is an issue that goes back at least 250 years and before. We're going to talk about that. So this is going to be a continuation of our series on social history. We did a whole overview of the entire Catholic social history, examining politics, economics, society and culture and what those how Christianity affects those things. And now we're going to be focusing more and more in the coming days on the period of the Pian Magisterium. Now that term is refers to the, the pontificate of Pius the sixth to the pontificate of Pius the twelfth. So it's about 1793, 1789 around the French Revolution, which Pius the sixth condemns all the way to Pius the twelfth. And during that time period, there is a revolutionary shift in everything in society, politics, economic, social, everything. And this is where our modern marital crisis really finds its, its origin. So what we're going to do is we're going to back up. We're going to talk a little bit about marriage in the social history. And we're going to talk about what the gospel did for, for women and for children and for marriage. 
and then we'll talk about what happened and we'll go through a little bit of this history and then we'll talk about annulments and what they are and so we'll go through that so first of all it's it needs to be understood that the the institution of marriage and this is coming out of a book that i'll reference a little bit later this is families without fathers by david popinoe and this is a purely sociological text. It's just talking about statistics and data. It is not addressing the spiritual side of things, but it is a very well uh, referenced book. We'll talk about that. But one of the things that he points out is that marriage as an institution exists for the sake of women and children. And here's the reason why. A woman has a biological connection to her children. She is bound to them. She carried them inside her body. And she has a very strong natural inclination and instinct towards being bonded to her children. And so it is very unnatural. And, as you know, that's what the insanity of our modern age. But it is extremely insane that uh, a woman would ever neglect or harm her children. And so there is a strong bond that is just pure biology with a woman and her children. Now, not so with the men men do not have the same biological connection. And that's simply a matter of biology. And so the institution of marriage comes in in every single culture, every culture has marriage. And the reason is because just on a purely natural level, people understood that unless a man is bound by a, a culturally uh, restricting institution of marriage, he would not be bound in the same way to his wife and children as his wife is to her own children. And so marriage exists just on a cultural level, on a purely natural frame of mind to protect women and children and to give them a lifetime of protection and support. And that's what marriage does. So marriage is a the most pro-woman and pro-children institution the world has ever known, just on a purely natural level. And so that because it bounds, it binds that man to provide and protect for his wife and children for their whole lives. Now, because of original sin, man was fallen and this institution was under strain and it was, it was also twisted so that the man was becoming a, just a slave master to his wife and children. And it was twisted until the coming of the gospel. Cahill writes, this is uh, again, going back to framework of a Christian state, page 429. He says, in no nation known to history, did the woman enjoy her natural rights previous to the advent of Christianity. So we see in when Christianity comes to, comes to world history, it changes everything. Uh, Leo the 13th in Arcanum, 1880, Paragraph seven, he describes the situation before Christianity came and the situation of marriage. So marriage still, still existed, but was so twisted. And here's how, quote, solemn rites invented at the will of the lawgivers brought about that women should bear either the honorable name of wife or the disgraceful name of concubine. Hence too sprang up the greatest confusion as to the mutual rights and duties of husbands and wives. Inasmuch as a man assumed right of dominion over his wife, ordering her to go about her business, often without any just cause, while he himself was at liberty to run headlong in with impunity into lust, unbridled and unrestrained, in houses of ill fame and amongst his female slaves, as if the dignity of the person sinned with and not the will of the sinner made the guilt. When the licentiousness of, of a husband thus showed him itself, 
Nothing could be more piteous than the wife sunk so low as to be all but reckoned as a means for the gratification of passion and for the production of offspring. Without any feeling of shame, marriageable girls were bought and sold like so much merchandise and power was sometimes given to the father and to the husband to inflict capital punishment on his wife, end quote. So this refers to the state of marriage and the state of things when the gospel came. The, in, the, in the Roman culture, the man could put his wife and his children to death lawfully. This is called wife murder. He could kill his wife and children, just put them to death. That's what a Roman father could do. So you had an institution of marriage, but it was so corrupted by original sin. Now, here's what happens when Christianity comes. And here's Cahill. Uh, page four, let's see, where, where am I? 431, he says, quote, the influence upon the mind of Christendom of the prerogatives of the Virgin Mary, the ideal of Christian womanhood that worshiped, worshiped being honored by all Christians as the queen and angel of men, the position secured in society as well as in the home to the Christian wife by the sanctity and the unity and the perpetuity of Christian marriage, the freedom allowed to every Christian maiden by the church's teachings to practice to dedicate her life to God in the state of virginity. So uh, another thing is the consent. They were, women were given freedom to consent or not to marriage. They needed to consent, which is not, they were not bought and sold. And last but not least, the superior character of the typical Christian woman as compared with her non-Christian sisters all contributed to raising the woman's prestige and secure for her a position of influence and dignity in the family and in society immeasurably beyond anything she knew before the advent of Christianity. So what we have now is we have all of these broken things about marriage were solved by Christian patriarchy, by the Christian gospel. And so it abolished wife and child murder. That is completely abolished, abortion. Then you have the abolition of forced marriage. So a woman had to consent to be married. You can just buy and sell women. And the abolition of divorce. So this is the main topic is the indissoluble marriage. So indissoluble marriage provides for a wife and child a lifelong security and provision. That's what indissoluble marriage does, just on purely natural level. So it protects the wife and children for their life. They're not a man is not allowed to divorce his wife. And so he's not allowed to leave her destitute. So also polygamy. So it's, it's purely monogamous. So the equal dignity of man and woman is also confirmed. And then Cahill also mentioned the, the cult of the Virgin Mary. And so you have the, the idea that the woman was inferior in her nature was completely abolished by the very cult of the Virgin Mary, by the honor paid to a woman as really the head of the church in the human sense. Obviously, our Lord is the head of the church as God and man, but Our Lady is not God and man. She is purely man, purely human. And so in the on the human level, she is the head of the church, period. And so Exalting a woman to such a high degree has a mass, a very powerful effect on the status of women. And so you have that the marriage within the marriage becomes what it has, that's what the gospel raises it to the point of an indissoluble bond, which provides that lifelong security for a wife and children. 
and then it is also raised to a sacrament. So on the spiritual level, it's also a super, uh, uh, it's a mode of supernatural grace and sal salvation. And this is what uh, St. James says, pure and undefiled religion is this, to keep oneself spotted, unspotted from the world and to, to visit widows and orphans in their distress. And this is indissoluble marriage. Indissoluble marriage is what guards against widows and orphans from being created so that a man cannot culturally be allowed to abandon his wife and children. There cannot be this divorce because the divorce uh, deprives the wife of a, a protector, which deprives the children of providers. It deprives the family. Okay. So that is just purely on the natural level. That is the raising of women. Now, here is the one of the most crucial aspects to understand about this history is that the economic place of women was integrated into one family economy. And this is crucial. And you even see this before the gospel. And the, the best passage here is Proverbs 31. So listen to this passage and, and just notice what is, what is the woman doing in the home on an economic level? So this is 31 verse 10. Who shall find a valiant woman? Far and from the uttermost coast is the price of her. The heart of her husband trusteth in her, and he shall have no need of spoils. So he, he doesn't need to raid and get more money or, or do some, some more economic uh, gain through, through brigandry. He doesn't need to do that because his wife is a part of this economy at home. Here's what she does. She will render him good and not evil all the days of her life. She hath sought wool and flax and hath wrought by the counsel of her hands. She is like the merchant's ship. She bringeth her bread from afar. She is she's, she's an integral part of the economy of the family. And she hath risen in the night and given a prey to her household and victuals to her maid. She's making the food. She hath considered a field and bought it. And with the fruit of her hands, she hath planted a vineyard. So she's working in the, the family farm. She's, she's buying things, tr doing tr transactions for the family business. She hath girded her loins with strength and hath strengthened her arm. She hath tasted and seen that her traffic is good. Her lamp shall not be put out in the night. She hath put her hand to a strong things. Her fingers have taken hold of the spindle. So she's working with the spindle to pr produce this economy. She hath opened her hand to the needy. She stretched out her hand to the poor. So she's using this economy to help the needy as well. She shall not fear for her house in the cold of snow. All her domestics are clothed with double garments. She hath made for herself clothing of tapestry. Fine linen and purple is her covering. So she's making clothing as well. Her husband is honorable in the gates, and he sitteth among the senators of the land. She made fine linen, sold it, and delivered a girdle to the Canaanite. So she's making things, and she's selling them, and she's an integral part of this family economy. Okay, so this is, a very, this is the crucial point to understand about the, the how the economics come in and how that changes marriage. And I'm going to show you a few old paintings just to just to give you an idea here. So here's here's a, an example of the family farm. This is from the 1500s. And as you can see over here, the there is a woman who is doing manual labor over here. So here she is doing her job over here. And, and then the rest of the family is working. And notice, too, the other factor here is that in a village, you have the extended family. So you have grandpa, grandma, aunts, and uncles. You have the rest of the family as well. 
within walking distance. They're just around and they're all working together and you have a greater community it's all one big network and the woman is a is a crucial part she's doing part of the all this work and so she forms a an important part of the family economy so she is doing work within the home whether that's just more dexterous tasks like the spindle or whatever or just whatever it is and obviously the man's doing a little bit more of the heavy lifting uh here's another uh one of the most famous paintings um to show this i think is uh, the angelus so this is um, this is the Angelus painting. So as you can see, man and wife are both working in the field. So the woman is working alongside her man. They're both working the field. They're pausing to pray the Angelus. So this is just showing the woman is a part of this integral family economy, the family farm. Obviously, the, not everybody was agriculture, but most of them were. The great majority of people were agricultural. Remember, the if you go back in the social history we talked about, you had three divisions of side. You had those those who pray those who fight and those who work. And mass majority, mass majority of people are people who work. And most of those people are farmers. So you got to produce the food. So, so that is the crucial point to get out of this time period right here, because what happens next is going to radically alter. Now, here's an important point to gather here, is that divorce was illegal. One could not. One could simply not divorce. It was against the law. So that's a that's against the laws because the Christian Church understood that you know you divorce your wife. You're not only com you're you're sinning against God because you cannot divorce. You cannot you know abandon your wife and marry another. As our Lord said, he who leaves his wife and marries another commits adultery. Uh, but you're also abandoning your wife and children. You're creating widows and orphans. And if the pure and undefiled religion is taking care of widows and orphans, it is the really the central thrust is a willful creation of widows and orphans. What an what an abomination to God! What an offense to God to do that. And so that is uh, that is an incredible offense. That's one of the sins that cries to heaven for vengeance is oppression of the poor. And so. You have divorce is illegal. Now, we'll talk about this in, in, when we talk about a little bit more about annulments in a little bit. But there was such a thing as imperfect divorce. Now, an imperfect divorce is simply the breaking of the common life for a grave cause. So that means that, you know, because everybody says, well, a, divorce was illegal. So all the women had to stay with their abusive husbands or whatever. Well, if a husband was abusive and there was a grave cause or there was a grave harm to the women or children, that was a grave cause for an imperfect divorce, which means a separation from the common life. You're not living together, but there is no breaking of the marriage bond. You're still married. You can't you can't go out and re you know, marry somebody else. So there is a, what's called an imperfect divorce. And this is this is still something that's possible you know, given a grave cause. If there's a grave cause, there can be, because one of the duties of being married is sharing the common life. But that common life can be separated if there is a grave cause. And so that's what an imperfect divorce is. So not actually breaking the marriage bond, but you are breaking the common life for, for that grave cause. So then you have the period of 15, 17 and after. So this is the Protestant revolt. And the Protestant revolt, as we've discussed, 
was founded on nominalism and the idea that there is no universal justice, might makes right. And this is a period between 1517 and 1776, a period of absolutism. And this is both politically and economically, but also in the family. The crucial figure is Henry VIII, who divorces his wife, makes himself the head of the church, marries another woman. So he's an adulterer now. So he imposes his tyranny on this woman, on, on uh, Queen Catherine and her daughter, Mary, who was abandoned by him. And so he abandons his wife and children. He creates a widow and an orphan, so to speak. He marries another woman. He's an adulterer. And this is the foundation of the entire Anglican church. Also, the Protestant reformers, as I, I've discussed before, were adept at using lust to disarm Catholic priests. They were using, Martin Luther was trafficking in nuns. He was getting these nuns out of the convent, and then he was selling them off to all these Catholic priests to get them to become a part of the Lutheran Reformation. And it was complete debauchery. Uh, Luther's prince protector, uh, Philip Hess, he married two wives. He just practiced polygamy. Uh, there was also other polygamy, all other polygamy going on. Martin Luther said he could not, he could not argue that polygamy was wrong per se, because ultimately this is just all polygamy. Because if you're if you're divorcing your wife and marrying another, you're just becoming an adulterer and you're becoming a polygamist. And so the women are oppressed, beginning with the Protestant revolt to a much larger extent. Now, obviously, we need to we need to obviously admit that there were always oppress oppressions and the, you know, there was the oppressions of women and children, slaves in the, in the middle age, so-called middle ages, the Christian era. But the momentum of the culture was against that. And especially when you see this in the court love poem, the, not to the court love, love poem was profane, but you see it's perfection in Dante when he's, he's being led by Beatrice to a more holier life. And he's reverencing her as a woman connected to the cult of the virgin. And you see, so then you see the other thing is that the abolition of the cult of the virgin. So our lady is removed from honor. And so that immediately transfers to a lack of removal of honor towards women in the Protestant revolt. So the breaking of the indissoluble marriage begins with the Protestant revolt. They abolish marriage as a sacrament. So it's not even sacramental anymore. Um, the, also, you have the the culture begins to be attacked for the sake of economic gain, which is going to be the biggest issue that's going to affect marriage in, in just a few minutes. So Henry VIII starts abolishing feast days because he wants people to work more. He takes all the lands from people that more formerly were for the poor, puts them in the hands of elite nobles. And so the the, the econ economy is also affected very, very quickly. And so the, the economy is changing. And remember, the wife and the children are the integral part of that economy. Now, another point we need to raise here that I, I neglected to mention is that the children were also working on the family farm. And you were either a child who could not work or you became older and you could work, you could help out in all sorts of different ways. And the children were doing this. This is why eventually when you had public schools that you went off school in the summer because the, the children were there to help out with the harvest. So 
you have children working on the farm as well and working with the family business. So the whole family is this economic unit. And Henry VIII and other Protestant reformers, they start messing with the economy for their own gain. And this is what's, be, what's going to cause the most uh, delirious effect on the on marriage and the family, as we'll see. So the uh, so polygamy was not denied in principle. Obviously, just the breaking of vows, the weakening of vows themselves, whether that's marriage or religious life, because so many of the reformers were formerly Catholic priests married to former nuns. So you have a total breakage of all vows, the man and the wife, and then their marriage is not even a sacrament. So it's so just a, 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 a weakening of all bonds that held society together, particularly the marriage bond. So this is where an indissolubility of marriage is attacked. Now, interestingly, divorce still does not become prevalent, though. To their credit, the Protestants still, even with all their debauchery, they still manage to still have a, a basic of a Christian morality. So there's, there still is a shunning of divorce. There is not really an allowance for divorce. There is uh, divorce is still illegal in in most countries all this during this period <clears throat> uh and really when it gets to the republican revolutions is when this all changes and this is this is going to be the beginning of this whole story of 250 years 1776 the american revolution 1789 the french revolution the failed irish revolution as well this is when divorce begins to be legalized and again, the economy is also attempted to be changed and overrun. In the French Revolution, notably, they tried to change the days of the week to try to increase productivity. So there's there's such a strong, and this is right along with Henry VIII, is, is enforcing the will of the elites on the populace, including women and children, by breaking the marriage bond imposing something on the economy for financial gain. So, so in it, so you have the divorce begins to be, begins to be legalized. Now, interestingly, and this is one of the most crucial things, <clears throat> which is also going to affect the economy, <clears throat> excuse me, is what they, what they discover, the French revolutionaries discover is that they need to introduce pornography for social control. And this comes from the Marquis de Sade, uh, read E. Michael Jones' Libido Dominandi, where he discusses this. And he talks about how Marquis de Sade, one of the revolutionaries, one of the, form, the foremost revolutionaries, he sought to cause cultural revolution by showing naked women in the theaters right from the very beginning. And he published a book with pornography. And this was an effort to create, to weaken the marriage bond, to weaken the cultural mores of society to control people, to get them addicted to pornography so that they can be controlled. So you have an increase of sins against the sixth commandment. You have the increase of pornography, divorce, prostitution. Then you have the revolutionary principle. And that was just simply the application of Martin Luther's ideas to further cultural structures and institutions. So the revolutionary principle is that if there is any inequality, there's any hierarchy, hierarchy means sacred order, 
if there's any order inequality hierarchy authority it needs to be rebelled against overturned so that everybody is equal so that there are in in everybody is equal means there is no sacred order there is just disorder because hierarchy is what orders things that are unequal according to say thomas that's what sacred order is but the revolutionary principle says that there must be constant revolution until there is complete disorder, AKA equality. So the woman and man are equal in dignity, but they aren't equal in many other things. Obviously the man is the head of the wife. Uh, he's stronger and you know he fulfills those stronger tasks and things of that nature. The woman also is has uh, more gifts than him in, in other areas. So obviously child rearing and emotional sensitivity and, and literacy, uh, emotional literacy that is. So there is these strengths and weaknesses of man and woman, and there's this hierarchy that exists. And as we'll see in a moment, this begins to have a massive effect on the family is this revolutionary principle. Now, here's the other massive factor is the economy. Now, during this revolutionary period, it was the period of the first industrial revolution. And this was a period of massive urbanization. So what you have is all of these financial planners were seeking gain and they were seeking to have more workers to mechanize, to use technology, to get create more wealth. And what you have is a massive period of urbanization where all the family farms are abandoned in favor of the cities. And this is when there begins to be a massive change in the marriage bond and the family. And this is one of the, perhaps the most detrimental effects on the family, perhaps on the natural level. As I said in the, the last part of the social history, basically the, the industrial revolution made everybody rich in the material sense at the expense of culture. That was the price for everyone getting an iPhone. Give up your culture, we'll give you an iPhone. Now, it wasn't a no. Not everyone kind of make a choice like that. Many many are forced out of the family farm because they can't sell their goods anymore because the mechanization is is undercutting their prices. So people are forced just economically to the cities. But here is where we have our first family crisis. Now I'm going to go over to Popanoe here, and he talks about the first father crisis because remember it's that the divorce is abandoning the father for the wife and children. He says, <clears throat> quote, the first serious concerns about father loss, this is page 81, are typically dated to the decades of 1830s and 40s. So this is just a few generations after the American Revolution. He's talking about America, by the way, only, but this also affects Europe. So when the migration of the American people from farm and rural village to town and city was getting underway. Associated with this migration and the accompanying economic and social shift to an urban industrial way of life, fatherhood and also motherhood underwent a ma major transformation through the rise of the remarkable new family form. Historians call it the modern nuclear family. This new family form consisting of a married couple with children living apart from other relatives. The productive work of men shifted from the home to an outside workplace and fatherhood became a part-time activity. So one factor is you lose the extended family, you lose the greater culture, you have to, you don't have your holidays for, you know, this saint's day and that saint's day. Now you have a weekend or even less than that 
initially you, you have even less weekends you have to work 12 hours a day you know seven days a week or whatever so it takes the take the man out of the house you lose the extended family the extended family is no longer there to be your security to help with your children and all that so you lose that and then he continues the modern nuclear family in the words of princeton social historian lawrence stone is one of the most significant transformations that has ever taken place not only in the most intimate aspects of human life, but also in the nature of social organization. The marital union in this new family form was based on intimacy and companionship rather than joint economic function. This is a crucial point. The family unit was set up to achieve an intimate, protective environment for the nurture and care of its members rather than mere economic survival. And whereas husbands and wives had once shared both parenting and productive work activities in the modern nuclear family, women could leave productive, including farm work, thanks to the men's outside income, to become full-time mothers and housewives. Mothers, not fathers, became primary parents, end quote. So the, here's the crucial piece here, is that the marriage bond itself becomes much more sentimentalized. It's no longer, when you have the man outside the house, he's making all the money, he's doing all the economy himself. He's getting the money, and this is, becomes another problem later on, but he becomes, he has the money, and now the woman is not a participating at all in an economic function. And so marriage itself loses its economic meaning. So before there was an economic meaning to marriage itself, a man depended on his wife, like we read from Proverbs, she, he depended on his wife for part of the family economy. And so separating these things and sort of separating the economy from marriage takes out that economic meeting. And so the bond of marriage becomes, begins to be much more sentimentalized as a result. And so the, that again, weakens the marital bond more. So the man is outside the home it, this this relationship is sort of merely a romantic relationship. Obviously, romance has always been a part of marriage. But when you lose that economic necessity, then you have one less thing to stay married. It's just merely merely more of a sentimental thing. Now, on, on top of this, you have in 1848, You have the Declaration of Sentiments. This is the first bit, first large feminist gathering at Seneca Falls in America. And you have the revolutionary principle of the revolutionary principle of Martin Luther, of Thomas Jefferson, then applied to the family. So here's what the women say at Seneca Falls. This is from 1848. Quote. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men and women are created equal, that they are endowed by the creator with certain unalienable rights, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted. Whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these rights, it is the right of those who suffer from it to refuse allegiance to it. Such has been the patient sufferance of women under this government, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to demand the equal station to which they are entitled. The history of mankind is a history of repeated injuries and usurpation on the part of man toward women, having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over her, end quote. So we need to understand, first of all, that this was a true injustice, just like communism was able to provoke the poor against a real injustice against them. 
so too feminism was able to provoke women against a real injustice against them. Remember, Luther was oppressing, Luther and Henry VIII and all the other Protestant reformers had, had started to create a Protestant culture which was oppressive to women. They took out the veneration of the mother of God, they took out indissoluble marriage, took out marriage as a sacrament. This basically just created a situation where women were oppressed far more than really it was it was getting back to more of the pagan where a, a woman could be murdered you know that that type of degradation where he was exercising a type of tyranny over her. it wasn't as bad as wife murder but it was so bad as to begin to provoke a, a massive revolutionary movement such as this but notice here that what they do is they don't become catholics and you know feel their feminine genius and know the mother of God and, and indissoluble marriage, which would have been the answer to that injustice. Instead, they embrace the revolutionary principle of Thomas Jefferson, where the hierarchy only exists. His authority comes from the consent of the governed. Now, not just pure republicanism, but the very authority itself does not come from God. It comes from the consent of the governed. And so this idea was that the women could consent to patriarchy or not. Now, obviously a woman could consent to this or that patriarchy because a woman could consent to being married to this or that man, obviously. But patriarchy itself was something established by God through the Christian gospel. And as we've discussed, that was intended to protect women and children, but it had been twisted by the Protestant revolt into this injustice against women provoking this reaction. So you have the Declaration of Sentiments, um, but what we have here is you have, when you separate the man from the home, this is when you be, and you give him money, this is what you get. Here's a cartoon from the era. This is later 19th century. This is during the temperance era. So this is when a man was getting his money at his factory job, how some miles away from the home. And then he would spend his money getting drunk, sleeping with prostitutes. And this is, this was a massive movement. So here, here we have, my father keeps a tavern on the one hand, she's rich. My husband spends his money at the tavern. She's poor and she's cold because obviously this man is not being a patriarch. He's being an effeminate man. He's not providing for his wife and children, but that this is the economic and cultural situation that they were brought under through this situation where the marriage bond had weakened. The man now has money outside of the family. He's far away from the family. He's spending his money on drink instead of his wife and children. And this is what provokes the temperance movement. Sometimes I, before I understood this, I always wondered, wow, how could they, how could they illegalize alcohol altogether in the United States? That just seems fantastic, but they did it because of this, because it was a, a true injustice where there was a massive movement of drunkard men who were using all their their money on booze and harlots and just destroying families. And so this is this is the what resulted from this. So this is the period of what's known as first wave feminism. So again, the idea was not to become Catholic and actually get the answer to this injustice. The idea was the revolutionary principle was that women need to have more political power and that's going to actually solve the problem. But that's, again, not the answer. It's the answer is the Catholic faith. But 
this is the situation that they found themselves in. So what you have here is this is when this is late 1860s period of the American Civil War or so-called the Second Civil War, as some historians call it. So 1860s, this is when the divorce laws begin to be relaxed. So again, to their credit, to their credit, most of the Protestants still held laws against divorce. But this is when divorces, divorce laws were beginning to be relaxed. And for obvious reasons, like we're saying, we have abusive husbands abusing the wife and children, spending all their money on drink. And the woman is is destitute in this economy. She's not a part of a, an economic integration with the economy. She's completely dependent on a, a man working at a factory. And so you can understand why this in, this uh, idea that we should we should have divorce comes about and becomes prevalent. Now, it became so prevalent that 1880, we already quoted this encyclical, but 1880, Leo XIII writes Arcanum on marriage, addressing this situation. He writes this, paragraph 28. Much of the legislators of these days, these are days, may wish to guard themselves against the impiety of men and thus render divorce easily obtainable. But then he discusses why this is completely foolish and terrible. Truly, it is hardly possible to describe how great are the evils that flow from divorce. Matrimonial contracts are, by it, made variable. Mutual kindness is weakened. Deplorable inducements to unfaithfulness are supplied. Harm is done to the education and training of children. Occasion is afforded for the breaking up of homes. The seeds of dissension are sown among families. The dignity of womanhood is lessened and brought low. And women run the risk of being deserted after be, having ministered to the pleasures of men, end quote. So we have Leo XIII addressing this, understanding that this is a threat to women and children. This is ultimately a threat. Yes, the, this impiety of men exists, and we need to rectify this terrible injustice and wickedness against women and children. But the answer is not divorce, because the institution itself of marriage protects women and children. So this is what Leo points out. Now... Here we have the turn of the, the 1900s. We're on the, this is the second industrial revolution. We have the invention of the automobile and the, we have an invention of something else. This is the invention of the teenager. So the mechanization, the industrialization, the increase in technology more and more creates the youth no longer working as a part of the family economy. Now, the woman was already not working as much as a part of the family economy, but now the, the children are not anymore. So now you have these children who, who come to adolescence and they are suddenly idle. They don't have anything to do. And this is the beginning of the modern notion of the teenager. Before this, it did not exist. And this is a very crucial point. Before this, you were either a boy or a man. You were either a girl or a woman. You could be a young woman or a young man, but there was no such thing as a teenager as such, as a social class as we have today. So it was understood that the man, the boy was becoming a man. There was a point where he was being trained to become a man, but now we have this situation because of all different sorts of factors. And, and obviously there are other factors here. We're trying to just talk about these single factors. There's other factors. It's when we talk about history, there's all sorts of different things, but you have this invention of teenagers. And this 
in the 1920s, you have the jazz era, especially as the, among the youth, where it, there is an increase of debauchery and uh, lust and continuing to weaken in the marriage bond. So it had already been weakened and sort of sentimentalized because of the economic changes, but it was also becoming more and more sexualized as a part of the jazz era. And they were using the music to help to create a situation of cultural revolution. And this is when Hollywood began to produce pornography in Hollywood and mass produce this, what we would call R-rated movies, basically, in the 1920s. And this is what provoked the Catholic Church to finally organize a boycott of Hollywood, which they were successful until 1965, as we'll see. But the other thing that happens in 1930 is the allowance for contraception by the Anglicans, 1930. So this is following right on the sexualized decade of the 1920s of the jazz era. So then you have Cassie Canubi, Pius the, the 11th. Then he goes against this and again, like Leo the 13th, addresses the marriage breakdown. And particularly he talks about the emancipation of women because this was the idea that the woman needs to be emancipated from this unjust institution of, of the home, of marriage. And again, there, there were serious injustices happening which was allow, allowed them to be provoked towards this. But here's what Pius XI says. And again, see what he see how what he sees about the effect this is going to have on women. He says, quote, this is not the true emancipation of women. This is paragraph 75, nor that rational exalted liberty, which belongs to the noble office of a Christian woman and wife. It is rather the debasing of the womanly character and the dignity of motherhood and indeed of the whole family as a result of which the husband suffers the loss of his wife the children of their mother and the home and the whole family for of an ever watchful guardian. More than this, this false liberty and unnatural equality with the husband is to be the detriment of the woman herself. For if the woman descends from her truly regal throne to which she has been raised within the walls of the home by means of the gospel, she will soon be reduced to the old state of slavery, if not in appearance, certainly in reality, and become as among the pagans, the mere instrument of man, end quote. And this is what, the popes see during this era, they already see that woman is becoming degraded. She's be, she's going back to the pagan objectification of her as it was before the gospel. But this continues, this sexualized culture. We have 1950, Pius XII. He, in his homily at the canonization of St. Maria Goretti, June 24th, 1950, quote, during the past 50 years, coupled with what was often a weak reaction on the part of decent people. There has been a conspiracy of evil practices propagating themselves in books and illustrations in theaters and radio programs in styles and clubs and on the beaches, trying to work their way into the family and society and doing their worst damage among the youth, even among those of the tenderest years in whom the possession of virtue is a natural inheritance, end quote. So you have this economy and this is when the financial elites are, are working out the marketing to teenagers. They're marketing to the youth using technology and they're using sex to sell their products. And this is what they've they figured out decades before this. As he says, it's been 50 years. So Pius XII, he's saying that this has been going on as a conspiracy since 1900. So this is, they're using the marketing again, 
pornography was discovered as a political tool back in 1789. So now they're using pornography against the youth and it's not pornography yet per se, but it's still sexualized towards the youth attempting to create political control, create economic dependence. And it's among the youth. And especially in the 1950s, you see the youth culture begin to have a serious rise through musical movements like rock and roll. You have um, obviously the TVs beginning to become much more prevalent. You have the TV in the home. TVs, not, it's not just the movie theater. Now you can bring it into your home. And a lot of these pornographers and these types of elites throughout this whole era, as we saw way back in Marie Marquis de Sade, who was using the theater and the books, they're pushing for this technological innovation because they want, because Marquis de Sade understood he can't have pornography in the theater. It's very difficult. You, you can't, you can't see the pornography. If you crowd a bunch of men into a theater, you can't see all the pornography, but now we've got the theater. We brought the theater into the television with the television into the home. And that's what, the, you know, these, these pornographers are pushing this technology. So it's not simply just a bunch of great free market innovation, which it is that there are much of that going on, but there's also these nefarious forces which are seeking to destroy marriage and the family life. So moving on, we have 1960, one of the preparatory documents for Vatican II. Cardinal Taviani says, quote, the moral order defends the mutable principles of Christian modesty and chastity. We know the energy is spent at the present time by the world of fashion, movies, and the press in order to shake the foundations of Christian morality in this regard, as if the sixth commandment should be considered outmoded and free reign should be given to all passions, even those against nature. The council will have something to say about the subject. It will clarify and eventually condemn all the attempts to revive paganism contrary to the moral order, end quote. But this type of rational caution, especially the message of Fatima, was suppressed by the council who said in Gaudium et Spes, the church has nothing to fear from the modern world. And so in 1965, the production code in the United States was successfully broken with pornography in Hollywood. And then you have in 1965 and 67, various official church statements from bishops or theologians allowing contraception. So you have a massive sexual revolution brewing where Catholics are surrendering to contraception. To his credit, Paul VI, now saint, 1968, Humanae Vitae, condemns contraception, and he understands again the effect that this will have on women by weakening the marriage bond, allowing contraception. It says, quote, this is Paul VI, a man who, this is paragraph 17, a man who grows accustomed to you, the use of contraceptive methods may forget the reverence due to a woman and disregarding her physical and emotional equilibrium reduce her to being a mere instrument for the satisfaction of his own desires. No longer considered her, considering her as a partner whom he should surround with care and affection, end quote. So again, another technology, contraception, is just all about men abusing women for their own gratification and the financial elites controlling things and the politicians. And they're marketing this for their own advantage. Now, 1969, now we have, here is the type of insanity that was being promoted. So this is a quote from Mallory Millette, who was a feminist, but they later reconverted to her Catholic faith. But this was her sister, Kate Millette, 
And this was in 1969. They had a meeting with a bunch of feminist elites and they were planning their social revolution. This is what they said, quote, it was a liturgy. This is what they said. How do we make cultural revolution? By destroying the American family. How do we destroy the family? By destroying the American patriarch. How do we destroy the American patriarch? By taking away his power. How do we do that? By destroying monogamy. And how do we destroy monogamy? By promoting promiscuity, eroticism, prostitution, abortion, and homosexuality. End quote. This is 1969. They're planning this. This is exactly what they wanted to do which they did successfully using the technology, the marketing to teenagers and the youth using all of these means, which were able to psychologically manipulate people into accepting these things. Now the marriage bond was already being weakened since the 1860s with divorce being allowed and more and more divorces were happening and being allowed. The divorce laws were being weakened, weakened until 1974, more marriages in the United States ended in divorce than in death. So obviously the marriage does end at death, but with a divorce, this, this is when the line crosses. And obviously 73 was the Roe versus Wade decision and other countries are following suit before and after. And so at this point in the 1970s, this is when the whole flood of sexual feminist Marxist revolution inundates the family and creates exactly what they desired in destroying the patriarchy and in destroying the family, which ultimately turns out to destroy women and children. Because first of all, the children are abandoned. The children are with divorced parents. Uh, Pope Inouye actually, he even just, again, this is purely on the scientific data level. He makes the argument that women or children are, are far more affected by divorce with, by losing their father than they are if their father died. The data shows that even if their father had died, they would be better off than if this divorce happened and they lose their father. And so the impact is immeasurable. And what you have during this period is basically a massive experimentation on children by depriving them of a mother and a father together. And with divorce, it creates generations of children divorced family, families, which are wounded by this divorce. Because oh, another factor here is that children understand a divorce to be in some way a rejection of them because they identify with their mother and their father. And so when a man rejects his wife or a wife or husband, the children have an impact on them where they feel that they are rejected. And that is the difficulty. And there's so many other factors. Again, take a look at Popinoy for, for more on that. There's so many different factors, but this is this is what's created the situation we have today. The, we have the economic shift. We have the marketing shift, the technology, um, the po politics, the social sociological and the cultural breakdown, which creates the situation where 50 to 60 percent of marriages are ending in divorce today. And this is the context for the annulment crisis, all of these annulments that we discussed in the beginning, where we went from 300 to 50,000, this is that period right here in these 50 years after this explosion of cultural revolution that is planned out by various feminists or Marxists or just financial elites to create this crisis, this chaos in the family, removing, having removed it from its economic function. So 
this is the situation we're in. These are all the social, political, economic factors that contributed to the annulment crisis, in particular, the weakening of the marriage bond, sentimentalizing it. And the next show, we're going to talk about more about the doctrinal factors, because there are doctrinal controversies that arise during this period that are addressed even in the pontificate of Pius XII. And this then creates a, a further controversy in the doctrine of marriage. And that's what we're going to be talking about on Thursday. So, but before we do this, we're going to just go to go over some basics about what annulments are. The very first thing we need to, to, to understand about annulments is that there is no such thing as annulling a marriage. It's impossible to annul a marriage. Annulment as a verb can only be understood as the process of discovering whether a marriage has occurred or not. When you get an annulment, you don't actually get an annulment. What you get is you get a declaration of nullity, which is a declaration by the church having investigated the conditions of the sacrament and the validity thereof. You get a declaration of whether or not that marriage is valid or not, because a valid ratified consummated marriage cannot be cannot be broken by any human authority whatsoever for any reason, period. There is indissoluble marriage. And this is where we have we have a difference with the Eastern Orthodox. Because the Eastern Orthodox do not claim that they have indissoluble marriage. They have divorce and remarriage up to four times, or four marriages, that is. And they do not have any technicality or, or nuance to this. It is literally a divorce and remarriage. So the marriage bond is broken, another person is married while the other spouse is still living. That is the Eastern Orthodox practice. Now, to be fair to them, they they do the second marriage is a service of repentance. And so it's a penitential service, but the end of the day, they allow the marriage bond to be broken. Now, the Catholic side holds to more closely to the tradition by saying that there it is impossible that the marriage bond itself could be broken for any reason whatsoever. If there could be, if, if, if the, the only way it could be quote unquote broken is if it never even existed in the first place. And that's what a declaration of nullity means. So the, I want to talk quick about what we do. I got a, I get, there's an article linked here on um, Eric Ibarra, uh, my friend who does uh, a lot of apologetics with Eastern Orthodox. And he has just, it's just all about the quotations from the fathers on marriage and indissoluble marriage. So it goes over that. Um, but the basic idea is that a sacrament has form and matter. A sacrament has to be performed in a proper way. So if you were baptized with something other than water, you aren't actually baptized. And this is a principle that the Eastern Orthodox would also accept. If someone was baptized in something other than the Trinity, you would redo, quote unquote, redo the baptism, or you just do the baptism for the first time you would redo the ceremony and you do it properly so it actually occurred. And that is what's happening with marriage, is if there is some serious defect in the sacrament itself so that the marriage in fact did not occur, then there can be a declaration of nullity where the marriage did not in fact occur. So uh, let me, we're gonna get into, there's also the other, if you want a preview of the next show, 
the other linked articles from William Marshner, which discusses this controversy right when it was it was breaking out in 1978. And so William Marshner, take a look at that article. That's in fact a, uh, a it's, it's not it's more than an article. It's, it's about a hundred pages, but um, it goes into a lot of uh, definition. But here's here's the definition of marriage from the 1917 code. Matrimonial consent is the act of the will by which both parties give and receive a perpetual exclusive right over each other's bodies for the purpose of acts which are suitable to themselves for the procreation of offspring, end quote. So it's giving of the exclusion, uh, the, the bodily rights, the right to the conjugal act for the purpose of, of marriage. And Prumer adds that a marriage can only happen if there's no impediments. So the essence of the marriage contract is the consent and again, this is where the woman's dignity is preserved because she can consent to this. And we're gonna we're gonna go for another ten minutes or so. So if you have any questions, please uh, put your questions in the chat. We'll try to answer those. And if I don't get any of the questions, we will talk about them with John Farrell on Thursday. So please send me all your questions, and we'll record all of them. Make sure we get to those. Um, so so Prumer says this is uh, number eight thirty six. Marriage is the conjugal union, which means the union of bodies for the purpose of procreating children of a man and woman who are free from impediments, which binds them to life lived in common and together. So, so Prumer then discusses the, basically a, a marriage is valid when there exists no annulling impediments between the two parties. So just like the sacrament of baptism, if there, if there was an impediment, so to speak, you know, if you're baptizing with something other than water, it didn't actually happen. So you need to do that properly so that the sacrament happens. Now, the crucial point here is, again, uh, this is number 838, only the church has the right to determine and to pass judgment on everything which affects the essence of Christian marriage. So this is the, the church has the right to that. The, the state does not have the right to just allow divorce. Christians cannot just get divorced, even if it's an imperfect divorce, without the church. The church has the right to judge these things because the church has the right to judge the sacraments. So then he goes on 842, the matter of the sacrament is found, so again, we have form and matter. Every sacrament has form and matter. So the form, I'm sorry, the matter is found in the bodies of the two parties or as some authors desire, and the right over the body for each other for the purpose of sexual intercourse. So, and then the, the matter is the expression of a transference of rights. So you come to the marriage, you show up at the, at the wedding, this is the matter. You are offering your body to this other individual to be your spouse, to her to be your spouse, and vice versa. And then you have the form, the form of the sacrament is the mutual acceptance of this transference expressed externally. So the, the act in the marriage wedding, the, the wedding is, I take thee to be my lawful spouse, et cetera, et cetera. That is the form. So you're, you're consenting uh, to receive this individual as your wife or husband. That is the form. So it is the mutual rights over one's bodies for, for generating children and life in common and the consent that is the essence. And so therefore, since the consent is the essence, if there is something that is an impediment to that essence that you're not actually consenting, that is when a marriage doesn't actually occur. That's called an attempted marriage. So you attempted a marriage, but in fact, there was some kind of impediment there, which didn't allow that marriage to actually come about. So we get into um, 
again, he talks about imperfect divorce and reasons for that. For So, for example, carnal adultery. Like if someone committed adultery, that would be a grave cause enough for an imperfect divorce when you separate. Um, some other uh, grave causes. There's also spiritual adultery. So heresy or apostasy, that's a grave cause for imperfect divorce. There's grave danger to solar body. So like abusive husband, you know, obviously. Um, there's also mutual consent. So you can, you know, you can separate, you know, some pious um, couples have separated and, you know, joined monasteries separately. So that that's also something, uh, I guess, a more, you know, a more positive thing for a so-called imperfect divorce. Uh, but then, so he talks about the impediments. So these are the things that occur. So there's two, there's di different types of impediments then. So one is a, uh, an impediment, which um, makes the, this is called a prohibitory impediment. This is what makes the marriage unlawful, but not invalid. So these are things where you need to have some kind of dispensation if you're going to get married. So, so for example, the prohibition of the church during certain seasons, um, there, you know, you're betrothed to another person. A betrothal is a promise to be married except for grave cause. So you need to deal with the grave cause. You can't just be betrothed to someone else and get married. Obviously, you know, if you have a vow to some other state that's that's incompatible, um, those are the types of things that are prohibitory impediments, which do not annul, they don't annul the marriage, but they prohibit to make it lawful. Now, now the main, the main thing is we talk about is the annulling impediments, which actually make a marriage invalid. So it's an attempted marriage. So here are the main 14 that, that Primer talks about. And if you go to uh, St. Thomas Aquinas supplement question 50, a1, he also discusses, he has a list of 12, I believe, um, but the theologians in Primer's time had, had distinguished a few of them further. So there is one, there's error. So, you know, if you're marrying the wrong person by mistake, like Jacob married, you know, Leah and Rachel and that whole controversy, you know, you know, you can't marry the wrong person. You can't consent by mistake to somebody else. Uh, duress or fear, you know, can't force someone. They have to truly consent. Abduction. Obviously, you can't abduct someone. Uh, impotency. If you're not able to actually generate children, that can be an annulling dependent. Existing marriage bond. Obviously, if you're married to someone else, you, you're ma validly married to someone else. You cannot contract another marriage per se. You cannot do it. Insufficient age. You're not, you're not old enough. You can't be married. You can't consent. Disparity of worship. So a different cult, different uh, religions. Uh, major orders or if you know, professed it in a religious order, um, you can't contract marriage. Uh, and there's other distinctions there, but we're not going to get into those. Um, crime, um, consanguinity, and infinity. There's so obviously you know your your close relatives. You cannot marry them. Public propriety. If if you are living together as as you know a concubinage, that can be an annulling impediment. There's a spiritual relationship or legal relationship. So if you're uh, like an adopted child or a godfather, godmother, that is also an annulling impediment. So those are the basics of the annulments where there is an annulling impediment. So the reason that the church can create, a, can do a declaration of nullity is that some of these things can not be discovered until after the marriage is attempted. So you attempt a marriage and later you find out that it's, I don't know, you know, one of these things, you find out that you're in long lost brother and sister or some, you know, crazy thing like that. So some crazy 
uh, impediment. So these are the basics of an impediment to the valid celebration of marriage. So that's how an annulment works. And those are the basics of the, the, the doctrine. And you, again, you can go to St. Thomas to go into that. So those are the basics of the annulments. Uh, and that's annulments 101. And again, what we'll do here is we will go into uh, more of the doctrine because this is going to be a lot more complex when we talk about the doctrinal controversy. And if you read a little bit about William Marshner, you'll see that the definition of marriage changed in 1983 with the Code of Canon Law. The definition changed and the, the question is, did this have an impact on the annulment crisis? Because the definition of marriage, the um, the understanding of the essence of marriage and that consent becomes shifts into what we have today. And so we'll talk about how this has, has impacted things. So any questions, please send them over. Unfortunately, I got to, I got to cut out here. Um, please send your questions or comment, and then we can address all the questions on Thursday's show with John Farrell. Again, I want to ask, uh, thank you for all our patrons. If you become a patron, you can get both these books as eBooks for free. Uh, so you have Kennedy's book on manliness. This is an extremely important book. He just got uh, interviewed today on Mike Church, actually. So you can take a look at his interview and then my book on the Bible. Um, so thanks a lot for the patrons. Again, send me all your questions. And um, let's continue to pray for each other. There's a lot of uh, hurt with this topic and we really want to address it properly and deal with everything we can. Uh, so we want to pray for especially children of divorced parents, uh, people in difficult marriage situations, uh, people who are struggling with an annulment process of any kind. Uh, whatever you're dealing with, let's pray and give this to the Lord and ask his mercy and his grace to guide us. And most of all, to get keep, keep, keep us close to his sacred heart in this difficulty, because ultimately our human affections will fade but his love will endure forever. Let's pray. Nomine Patris, Filii, Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Pater nostri, acquies in cedi, sanctificetum nomen tuum, adveniat regnum tuum, fia valentas tua, sicut in cedo et in terra. Panam nostrum quotidianum, dano visodia, dimita nobis, debita nostra, sicut et nos dimitimus debitoribus nostris. Et ne nos inducas in tetazionam, salibano nos amal. Amen. In nomine Patris, Filii, Spiritus Sancti.